This is Kona Bible Church. Thanks for listening. We pray that you will experience God's blessing as you consider Pastor Brian's latest message from his series, A Love Summons, from the book of 1 Corinthians. We've kind of titled this whole thing, A Love Summons. We could talk about all the letters, all the epistles to the church as a love summons. Um, and, and specifically, 1 Corinthians, the, one of the major themes is this idea of separate from division. Uh, and so when we think of love summons, well, we think of you all who have answered the summons. That's what church is. It's a gathering of those who have been summoned by the creator of the universe to come and hear a message, to hear a, a word proclaimed over you that will help you uh, to be separated from the corruption that so naturally uh, gets a hold of us. And so in 1 Corinthians, specifically the corruption that he is addressing is this idea of, of division that happens so easily uh, among us. And in fact, it comes very naturally, right? So that's why we need the Holy Spirit who has been given to us as a supernatural gift to overcome uh, the division uh, that we experience. And so one of the things I, I wanted to kind of give you a little bit of a glimpse or an idea of just how far we have made it. And so I think uh, when we think about breeding division, well, here are the things that breed division. All right, breeding division. So these are the things we want to steer clear from. These are the things that we want to cooperate with the Holy Spirit to overcome. One of them is elevating your group identities. Uh, we see that all the time in our culture right now is this elevation of whatever specific group you are in above every other group. And, and when you do that, that breeds division. Uh, and so we, we've looked at that. Uh, parroting worldly wisdom. You know, that happens in the church where, where people uh, just kind of come in and we still have the worldly wisdom uh, infested or our minds are still infected with that worldly wisdom um, and we bring it in even into the church, but that creates division. Uh, when we own things and not steward them, right? And we have learned that everything that we have is a gift from God, including our very bodies. Our physical bodies are a gift from God. And so instead of kind of taking ownership over all those things and saying, this is mine, I'll do with it as I please, or even the gifts that you have. We haven't even gotten into spiritual gifts, but we will be. All of those things, uh, we should have the, uh, the mindset of stewarding those things. Otherwise, we're going to breed division when we claim ownership over things that we can't take with us, right? Think about that, that day uh, when we sing that song uh, that we were singing earlier here today. Um, and just, just that idea of 10,000 years that we're going to have left even more than that, beyond that, more than that, to be able to think and, and praise the Lord. Well, on that day, you know, when we're kind of moving toward experiencing that first 10,000 years in his presence, there's nothing we can take with us. It has all been a gift from God. And so we ought to be kind of reflecting on how we can steward the things that God has given us instead of this, un, this natural kind of, this, this thing that leads to division of owning things. Um, so, no, we, we can't be doing that. Uh, then personal hypocrisy. Well, I mean, we, I think we all have stories. In fact, the pews that you're sitting in have empty spots next to them. Uh, this is not even a joke. They have empty spots next to them because people have encountered the hypocrisy 
of believers who have said that they believe in a God who's able to raise the dead back to life, but do not actually manifest it in their own lives. Um, and so imagine if this, uh, if, if we didn't have hypocrisy, imagine how full the churches would be. Uh, but part of that also comes from this idea, of, particularly in America, we do not understand the idea of community. And so we think we are independent and we, we kind of lift high and embrace this idea of independence when the reality is in the Christian world, we are communal. Uh, we have to have this idea that uh, we are not somehow, our actions are not somehow independent from one another. And so uh, it breeds division when we think that we are independent and can do whatever we want with no regard for the community. Um, and that, that breeds uh, division. Uh, you think about judging hearts. Ooh, man. Uh, this is what the Bible says. It doesn't say don't judge. It says don't judge people's hearts. But on the other hand, we should be judging actions. But when you don't judge actions, well, that breeds division, right? This idea of going somehow validating all actions, whoa, that, that is not good because that breeds division. So we have to have the courage to be able to Call a spade a spade. You know, <laughs> this is hilarious. In our culture, <laughs> I'm thinking of this for the first time, so bear with me. But I, I like to play cards, and I, I'm going to do this with my family. And we're going to be playing Pinochle, right? That's one of the games that we play. It's a suited game, spades, hearts, diamonds, clubs. And I'm going to lay down like an, a, a losing card of a wrong suit, of a wrong Trump suit, and I'm just going to say, uh, say that Trump was hearts. I'm going to lay down a club, and I'm going to say, I, I win that trick. And they're going to be like, what are you talking about? That's a club, and I trumped you with a heart. And I'm going to be like, ah, my club's a heart. It's identifying as a heart today. Okay? That's what I'm going to do. I'm gonna, and, then, and how can they argue with me? Because it's my experience. It's my experience that that club is a heart. And that's how I played it, as a heart. No, you have to be able to call a spade a spade. And not judging actions is not, it breeds division. Uh, living by the flesh, well, that's an, that's an easy one. You should kind of understand that concept already uh, because you have to live by faith, not by the flesh. Uh, and living by the flesh breeds division when you are constantly, I mean, think of what's my illustration all the time, living by the flesh, wanting every thin mint cookie in the box. That's living by the flesh. That doesn't help. Poor little Calvin, he wants a thin mint. Daddy, can I have a thin mint, please? He wants one. No, son, they're for me. That's living by the flesh. That breeds division between the two of us, right? That's a silly example, but you get the point that when we live by the flesh, it, doesn't, it certainly doesn't breed unity. Slogan Christianity, we talked about slogan Christianity. It is all over the place taking out certain passages of Scripture and coming up with a catchy little slogan and, and kind of intellectually justifying how you spiritualize uh, different things so that you can go on your merry way, living essentially according to the flesh, but doing so based on a slogan. No, that, that breeds division. We have to take all of Scripture and hold all of Scripture in order to be able to have unity with one another, not taking some uh, portion of Scripture and elevating it above and saying, this is my slogan, this is what I live by. Claiming rights, so we looked at that last week. 
Lay down your rights. If you want to separate yourself from things that cause division, we have to learn to be able to lay down the rights that we even are allowed in God's perspective. So breeding division would be coming back and saying, no, I have this right to do this, right? And, and doing so, again, to the detriment of the community, not having any sense uh, of engagement, uh, recognizing that we are one body, no, that we have, to, we, we have to steer clear of these things. So these are, these are kind of a list of things that breed division. Well, all along, then Paul is interspersing missing theology. Uh, missing theology is, is also a part of the equation of, of what is happening that breeds division. Because we have, a, a, we have failed to understand our anthropology. And so Paul is coming back and he's saying, no, you were created in the image of God. You are not some random chance and so because of our missing anthropology uh, in our culture today, we have a failure to understand what our identity is. We seek approval in all the wrong places. We want acceptance in the wrong places. And then, on top of all that, this is the kicker, we then, in our arrogance, we signal virtue to everyone about else about how great we are, having missed all these markers. And this is uh, a, a kicker. So missing theology, well, we've got all kinds of anthropology uh, issues that he's saying. Christology, the list is too long for me to even put anything uh, about our missing Christology. And, and Paul has been going, after each one of these issues, he's going, but you have to understand Christ. This is, this is why you are not connecting the dots. You are having division because you don't understand the nature of who Christ is. Pneumatology. The Holy Spirit has been given to you for, for help. And, and all throughout this passage, we've talked about the temple of the Holy Spirit, how we collectively are the, temp, the temple of the Holy Spirit, but also that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. If we don't have this in our theology, we are missing the foundation for how we can achieve unity together. Soteriology, oh, this is beautiful, right? The idea of Jesus buying us. He has bought us. You are not your own. When we talk about that ownership question, no, 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 you are not the owner of your destiny. What is that great poem? I am the captain of my own ship, right? I, don't ask me to say who it is, but it's a fantastic, fantastic poem. No, we are not. That, that poem is terrible theology, believe it or not. If you go back and you read that poem, it's not good theology. The reality is it's missing the understanding of how God saves us and that he bought us, that we are no longer our own, that we are actually, as Paul would say, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. Ecclesiology, that's the church missing the idea that we are one body, and we haven't even gotten there yet, but we will. We're going to be, he's going to use that language of the body of Christ. We've seen glimpses of it so far. And then the eschatology, the missing theology of our future. How many times has Paul been coming back and going, on the basis of the resurrection, this is why this is true. And it's not just Jesus' resurrection, it is our resurrection. In fact, that's going to be the capstone of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, a lengthy defense of the resurrection of Jesus and our hope in the resurrection. 
So he's coming back all, the, all this time saying, okay, here are the things that breed division. Here's why you're experiencing division because of X, Y, Z, all these practical things. But it comes really because you're missing understanding who God is and who you are in God. And so Paul is going to great lengths to be able to address these things uh, so that we might be able to cooperate with the Holy Spirit and overcome, be separated from these things uh, that lead to division. Well, today we've got a brand new one. And this is th another thing that leads to division is repeating the mistakes of the past. <laughs> I just want you to think about that for a second. Think about your own life and think about maybe something that has just repeatedly, you keep making the same mistake over and over again. Well, that's going to, to cause problems. It's going to create division, uh, not only in, in your relationships, but your relationships even in the church. And so in this particular passage, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 13, he's, Paul's going to give us four different trials uh, that ancient Israel has experienced and, uh, and how they made a mistake with each one of these. And, and so let's go ahead and, and read those, this, this passage, chapter 10, verse 1 through 13. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were all drinking from the spiritual rock that followed him, and that rock was Christ. It's an interesting language there. Again, we have to, I think it's very helpful to appreciate the term baptism and really what it means. It means that you are identifying yourself with something. You can be baptized into a lot of different things. When I was young, I was born, well, I was born in Indianapolis, but I was born to parents who were from Philadelphia. Yes, my dad at least was. Philly! I was born, I was baptized into a Philadelphia culture. Woo! Thank you, Jesus. Very happy that that's my identity. I love it. But so you see, I was identified with being a Philly person. Right? I was, so you can be baptized, you can be identified with a lot of different things. When I went to college, I went to Virginia Tech, so I became identified with Virginia Tech. Uh, for you, there's associations and identities that you have. You could use the language, you were baptized into those things. That's what it means, that you have taken on the identity of these things. Now, here, what we see is that he's using this language of taking on the identity of of Moses and Moses' journey as the leader of this group of people, he characterized, think of, think of just, Mo I mean, by Paul's day, Moses, it's not just the person, it's the law that was given to Moses that, that they are identified with. Everything about the ministry of Moses, the people of God were identified with him. So that whole journey out of Egypt and through the Red Sea uh, that, that even characterizes and qualifies as, as, as a type of baptism, an identity by which the people were saved miraculously, brought out of bondage, and given new life into the promised land. This is kind of what he is referring to here. Then he's talking about, well, you ate the same spiritual food. Remember, baptism and the Lord's Supper are 
inseparably connected. They're, they're not two totally different things where you can do one and not do... No, no, no. In order to get to this table, I, I point to this because here in the Lutheran Church, every week we approach the table to fellowship with Christ. In order to get there, you had to go through that little stand back there. And that little stand is a, a baptismal font because you first have to identify with Christ before you get to fellowship with him. And so they're inseparable. And so here, he's, Paul's even making this link, talking about the Israel, how they were identified with Moses, and then they even fellowshiped together. And, and they fellowshiped with, he's saying, Christ, which is interesting here. This idea of going, and, and I've, we've talked about this before, the idea of the word of God is a person. His name is Jesus. He became incarnate. So the word of God eternally existed prior to be the incarnation. And so you can talk and speak. Paul's using this opportunity to speak uh, about the pre-incarnate Christ that even the people of Israel were already fellowshipping with the word of God. Ooh, that's some good stuff right there. Now think about how they were nourishing themselves. They, they, all the same food and drink. What were they eating? What were the what were the, the community of the faith community of Israel? What were they eating all together? Manna. They were all eating manna together, right? God was supernaturally providing this bread of life. Does that sound familiar? That's who Jesus is, the bread of life. And then remember the beginning of the the, the foundation of Israel going into the wilderness and the end. What, what happened? Moses struck something. What did he strike? Bam! A rock. And what came out of that rock? Water. They nourished themselves on water that was provided. And here Paul is addressing this and going, man, this whole identity and fellowship of this community is in Christ. All right, now, now this is, so, so when we hear this, what we are hearing is we are hearing this is a faith community. So we can't just somehow go, okay, well, they must not have been true believers because of what they're about to experience. Because remember what happened to this community. They all came out. God saved them. He rescued them, took them out of bondage. And what happened to all but two of them? Even Moses, they all died in the wilderness. All except for Caleb and Joshua. That one generation, they all died. All the people of that one generation, 20 years and above, who firsthand witnessed the, the beauty they tasted the, this nourishment of, of God. They all died. Now, uh, this is where it, we, we pick up. But God was not pleased with most of them, for they were cut down in the wilderness. Now, this is the kicker. You ready for this? You ready? These things happened as examples for us, so that we will not crave evil things as they did. Now, when I hear that, I think about I think about how we see things, right? We, we look at things through the grid. We've talked about the grid in here. If you don't know about the grid, you better get the grid going, okay? The grid is when, when bad things happen, you have to run, your, run, your, run yourself through the grid. The first thing that you do is you ask what? Yeah, is it because of sin in my own life that this bad thing happened to me, right? The next thing that you ask is what? Could God be trying to teach me something about his character through this event? And the final thing, could God be trying to teach other people about himself through watching me as I engage in this trial? 
Right? That's a good, healthy grid to walk through as you encounter difficult things. It, because the opposite is true for a lot of people. People not of faith, what do they do when they encounter bad things? Oh, how could you do this to me? This is so wrong. Right? No, no, we, we walk through the healthy grid. That's really the life of Job. But Paul is giving us an indication right here that, wow, even the things that happened to Israel, they happened for our benefit. So, uh, so let's not miss the point. All right? So do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And let us not be immoral, as some of them were. And 23,000 died in a single day. And let us not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by snakes. And do not complain, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written for our instruction, on whom the ends of the ages have come. So let the one who thinks he is standing be careful that he does not fall. No trial has overtaken you that is not faced by others, and God is faithful he will not let you be tried beyond what you are able to bear. But with the trial will also provide a way out so that you may be able to endure it. All right. There are four trials that are alluded to in this passage. Let's take a look at each one of those trials. This is your homework this week. I hear you. You perked right up, Honoré. I like that. I like that. I hope you are doing your homework exercises. Your homework is to take those passages in parentheses, and read them in, into the greater detail. Now, 32.6, it's, it's more than that, but you can, you will, that'll give you the, at least the starting point. All right, the trial that they, when you experience God's silence. Oh, now, is this a trial that is faced by more than, uh, more than one person? Yeah, I think we can all relate to this. Think back to what is happening in Exodus chapter 32.6. You probably are pretty familiar with the story, Right? You caught it, right? Just 32.6. You're like, oh yeah, that's when, when Moses went up on the mountain to get the law. And he was gone for how long? 40 days. Now we are, like on the surface, 40 days doesn't sound like that much until, until you give something up for Lent. And then 40 days seems like an eternity, right? Uh, that's what we're going through, the Lenten experience right now. Now, that's 40 non-Sundays because you're already expected to do it on Sundays to give certain things up. Now it's this season of Lent where some of us have chosen to go, you know what, I want to dive deeper into prayer. And so I'm going to give something up so that when I am reminded that I am in desperate need of a thin mint, that I will actually, instead of having the thin mint, I will spend my time in prayer. That's one really good way of using Lent as a tool to increase your prayer life. But what happens is, as you're going through, like, you know, day one is unfolding, and it's like, okay, you know, you wake up, and you're like, ah, Thin Mint would be good for breakfast. Oh, right, it's Lent. I better pray. Uh, and then you pray. And then, you know, like, 30 seconds later, you're like, ah, Thin Mint would be <laughs> really good. What, what, was it, did I pick giving up Thin Mints? This is crazy. Oh, right, I'm supposed to be praying. And then you pray. And then like another minute goes, like, like the first day, you are already beaten down with the foolishness of giving up thin mints for Lent. And you are already exhausted at how many prayers you have sent up on the issue that you were praying about. 
And so imagine 40 days of this, of this nonsense of not eating Thin Mints. I didn't pick that, by the way, because I'm not an idiot, right? I should have, probably. But I say all that to stress just how long 40 days can be. So Moses goes up the mountain. He's getting the law. He's the leader of the people. The people have been baptized or identified into Moses, and now he's gone, and crazy things are happening at the top of Mount Sinai. Things that from down below, people would be looking at and going, eh, I don't think he's going to make it. Doesn't, doesn't look good for him up there. Dark clouds, lightning, all this. Eh, he's, he's done, and he's not coming back. He's, how long has it been? It's been a week, and he's not back? How long does it take to go up to the mountain? I thought, there's no water for, what, what's he eating? What's he drinking up there? What, how's he, he's done, he's out. You can anticipate that this season of silence that the people went through when Moses is up on the mountain and they are not hearing from God. Well, what is the mistake that they made? The mistake is taking matters into your own hand. Now, I wonder if, if in your life, if you've gone through a season where God has been silent in your life, where you have kind of been you know, praying about something or been just overwhelmed by something and you're just waiting for an answer from God and it just hasn't come. The mistake that you can make in those seasons is by taking matters into your own hand. Essentially what it comes down to is idolatry, right? Because God has asked you to trust him. One of the greatest exhortations and most repeated exhortations throughout scripture is what? Wait on the Lord. And he is, he, he, his timetable is not our timetable. Think about that pithy little expression, right? It, and it's pithy, but true. God is rarely early, right? He's rarely early. He, he's, he's never late, though. And, and actually, you know, he, but he's always right on time. Now, it's a pithy little thing, but it, there's so much truth to that. And, and then I, I always point you to the grass. Well, it used to be the grass out there, but it finally grew in. It took a while. But now we're looking at the grass down below, and it's, I've been looking at the grass. David, have you been looking at the grass? We did all that hard work. It's a, all backbreaking labor down there. Eight, eight hours one day, about ten of us were down there plugging with the, with the hope that it would be filled in by now. And I keep looking, and the grass is not growing in. It's taking forever. What is happening? I want to mow the grass, and it's, it's not ready to be mowed yet. Let's go on this. But you see what God is doing. He is so comfortable taking time. In, in fact, think about all the things that do take time. The beauty of nature takes time. It doesn't typically just happen overnight. And, and the same is true for the journeys of our lives, our journeys of faith. He is more than willing to take time. And beauty occurs because of that. Uh, on the opposite end of the spectrum, think of a negative example. Think about somebody who inherits a lot of wealth versus somebody who worked for that wealth. Well, there's beauty for one of them, and there's typically a train wreck for the other, right? Because they didn't have the time, they didn't go through all that to see the value of what they were receiving, and, and so they mistreat it, and, and it ends up being a train wreck. No, God is more than content in taking his time. But the, the problem, the mistake we make in God, allowing God to take his time or kind of experiencing him taking his time is we say, uh-uh, 
I'm an American. I'm getting, my, I'm getting it now. I want my fast food now. I want everything right this minute. See, Art's laughing because he's Canadian, and he's like, those Americans are so impatient. I mean, like he's, he's like, it's true. It's true. That's very true. We have a difficult time with this. When you take matters into your own hand, you, you elevate yourself. It's idolatry. You're putting yourself onto the place in the place of worship of God. And you're saying, I can do it better. You, you, you have failed. I will now be the one. And we can put all different types of powers on the, as an idol. We could put money. We could put time. We could put different positions. We could take all those things into our own hands. But at the end of the day, what you're really doing is you're putting yourself on the pedestal. And you're taking God down. Now, if you want to kind of help separate from division, things that cause division, learn from the Israelites' mistake. It, think about the seasons in your life where you have either experienced science or you might now be experiencing silence. And come back to the, the, to the thing that will help, and that is, I, I need to wait on the Lord. I know that he will come through for me in the right time. And, and so instead of taking matters into my own hand, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just, I'm going to breathe. I'm going to breathe in Jesus. Right? It's why we take these, these practices of meditation. I'm going to come back to the word of God, and I'm going to rest and settle and trust that God is sovereign and that he will do what is right. Eddie, can I get an Amen. Amen, right? Yeah, Eddie is living this out right now. He is not taking matters into his own hands. And you will find the faithfulness of God as you wait on him. A second trial that is alluded to in this passage comes from Numbers 25, 1 through 9. This is when the Midianites, <laughs> this is crazy, a hostile culture. The Midianites are seeing this nation essentially come out of Egypt and they're coming toward their land and they're going, ah, this doesn't look great. You know what we're going to do? Let's, you remember that guy? What's his name? He's got a donkey. Balaam, Balaam. Let's hire this guy and we're going to have him curse this nation Israel. So they go. They, they're going, look, we've got gobs and gobs of gold ready for you. Go ahead, curse the Israelites, and it's yours. And Balaam's like, I can only really say what God tells me to say. I can't say anything more. So he gets the word, and it's a blessing. Balak, King Balak of the Midianites is like, this is, what are you talking about? I want you to curse them. It blesses him again. Oh, no, I want you to curse them. You're not getting the gold. If you, if you keep this up, I'm going to take gold from you, in fact. No, he blesses them a third time. Well, Balaam, being the smart guy that he is and being a man of the flesh, goes, I really want that gold, so can I offer you some advice? Can I just offer you some advice? Instead of, instead of me trying to figure out if, if what God is going to say about these people, because he obviously wants to bless them, but I'm with you. Let's go ahead and ruin this nation uh, because you've got the gold, and I want that gold. Here's what you do. Get all your pretty little hotties and take them out to the men, the young men of Israel, and have them seduce the men. Right? That way you will become intermingled and all that they have will become yours. And we will have taken care of the problem. I'll get my gold and you won't get destroyed as a nation. And that's exactly what the Midianites do. 
And so I, I wonder uh, if this is a trial that we face today, when a hostile culture wants to make peace. Do you think we live in a, in a hostile a, a culture that is hostile to Christianity? It's uncomfortable living in a, in a culture that is hostile toward you. In fact, uh, many of us, because we, we don't like that feeling, well, I mean, I'm from the East Coast, so I don't really care. But, you know, especially those people from California, I mean, they, they don't want anybody to not like them, right? No, I'll eat soy. I'm sorry, I, I, I don't know what I'm saying. Uh, they don't, they want to make peace with people, Right? So they go, well, wait a minute, we're, we, we're not so bad, what can we do? And, and we are just like the Israelites. The Israelites also made a mistake. They were seduced to compromise their morals. You see, this is a mistake we can make when we try to make peace with a culture that is hostile to us. I, I live this firsthand, and I know I've told you this story before. I went to Virginia Tech as a transferred in as a sophomore, and I got stuck. I didn't know anybody down there, so I got stuck with some random roommate. And his name was Eric. He, he ends up being a great guy. We're friends now. But this is what, early on, like, it was quite evident that I was, I was you know, Mr. Goody Two-Shoes, right? I was a Christian. I'd go to church. I'd do this thing. He knew, so without me even saying anything, he knew that I didn't cuss. And one day he came to me, and he's like, if you don't cuss, if you don't cuss, I'm not talking to you for three days. And I was like, buddy, you are barking up the wrong tree. Because even if I didn't have the moral fortitude not to do it, just because I'm from Philly, I won't do it. Right? But the reality is, I, no, you're not. I, this is something that God impressed upon me as a, as a young boy out on the playground when I was in first grade at a public school. I remember running around, kids cussing, and I'm like, man, I'd like to cuss. That's a, that was funny. Uh, that cuss word was funny. I think that would be fun to do. And then instantly I was like, wait a minute, if I cuss, then all these kids know that I go to church. I can't, no, I'm not going to cuss. Boom, it was settled right there in first grade. So now, as a sophomore in college, he's saying, I'm not going to talk to you for three days. This is crazy talk, right? He didn't talk to me for three days to the minute. Now, I don't know what, if you, you might be like, ah, three days, well, it's a big deal, it's no, no big deal. You're walking in, you're living with somebody in the same room. Hey, how you doing? Silence, crickets. Now, for those of you who are married, <laughs> sorry, I won't get there. Perhaps you've experienced this. Quinn, Taylor, don't pull that trick on each other. It's not a good one. I'm not going to talk to him. I'll, I'll show him. Not being talked to, not even having your presence acknowledged by somebody else is painful. And all I had to do to make peace in the situation with somebody who was being hostile to me was simply to compromise my convictions, my morals, right? The, there's a seduction to do it in order to bring about peace. These are trials that not just the Israelites faced, but that we face as well. I hope that we can learn from the past mistakes of the Israelites so that when a hostile culture is appealing to us to make peace with them and do so by compromising our morals, you think about businessmen who are cheating on their taxes, right? That's a hostile culture that is appealing, seducing them, saying, if you just cheat on your taxes, then you'll be just like the rest of us. A hostile culture that talks about, oh, don't stand up for sexual immorality, uh, for morality. 
Just give in. It won't be that big of a deal. And then we can be at peace with one another. No, there's a multitude of different ways that a hostile culture can appeal to us to, to compromise on our morals. Don't make the same mistake that, that Israel made. If you do, it's going to create all kinds of division. You think about the, the state of the church today. It's, it is what it is because the church has too often compromised itself on morals in order to make peace with the state. Okay? That's the reality. You think about state churches in Norway and Germany and all these different countries, and then you talk about the, the cultural desire to be validated by, by the loud voices in America who are only going to mock and ridicule you if you stand on your convictions on what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman in our culture. No, and all you have to do is just say, ah, it doesn't really affect me, so it's okay. In order to have peace with them so that you don't experience their hostility, yes, it's a great seduction. But if we make that mistake, then what we are doing is we are breeding division right here within the church. Another thing that he alludes to is in Numbers 21, 5 through 9, when you experience the life you assumed you would get, here they are, the nation of Israel, having just come out, God promises to break them out of bondage to slavery, and they have supernaturally delivered them to the wilderness. Well, thank you very much. Uh, this man is getting a little tiresome, and I would like to, is this really why you brought us out here? And instead, what the, the mistake that they are making is blaming God, right? When, when life, uh, when, when you are not experiencing what you thought you, what you assumed you would get in life, right? The opportunity, the mistake we always make is, well, we blame God. We, we look at him and go, well, you've got the power to have done things differently, but you're not doing things differently, so it must be your fault, and, and, and that's a mistake that we need to make. And, and when we do that, when we blame God, what does that do? It creates division among us. We have to avoid these past mistakes. And that's one that's made all the time. Again, the empty pews that are, in, that are here in the church are because people have blamed God for the things that they experience in life because they're not getting what they thought that they would get. Remember, this gospel talks about life, right? And we emphasize, oh, life eternal and life abundant. But you know what else it talks about? It talks about that, that thorn, the crown of thorns. In order to get over here to the crown of glory, you've got to go through the cross. You've got to be willing to crucify yourself on the, on the cross. That's all a part of the story. But if we take the, the crown of thorns out and we take the cross away, well, then we're going to have some assumptions that, about the crown of glory that we just aren't going to get. Not immediately. And then what happens? Well, we blame God. Well, how, how come I'm not wearing the crown of glory? I thought I was going to get that. Well, it will come, but here's, what's, here's the process. So we have to avoid these mistakes. Another thing that he alludes to is in Numbers 16, 41 through 50. Uh, this is crazy. This is the Korah and his band, his group, and they are not happy with Moses' leadership. In fact, they feel like they are equally called to be able to lead and God is not happy that they have that level of impudence, that level of just arrogance that would somehow dismiss Moses' leadership. And so what does God do? <laughs> this is crazy. You ready for this? He, 
Korah and his, all the tents, the families, and the, God opens up the ground and swallows them up. That's what the Bible says. And they, they're gone, gone. And all of Israel is sitting there looking at this and going, wait, what, what just happened? Uh, part of our, those are our family members, and they were just swallowed up by God. Moses, what are you doing? And they start blaming and attacking Moses. You see, when you experience God's judgment, the mistake that you can make is not taking responsibility. Now, this happens all the time for us. We, we experience God's discipline or his, his, his judgment, and we blame him for it, or we blame other people for it, and we don't take the responsibility. No, you cannot make that mistake. Right? Think about, uh, I see this all the time, uh, this happens all the time, right? And, and we've experienced, even in this church, uh, a young baby dying, right? Less than two years old, dying. We see death and, and unfair things. We see George in a wheelchair and, and things that are horrible and unfair, right? And we see, we see these things happen and we go, wait a minute, this, this can't be. This, God could, could have prevented this. It's his fault. It's certainly, well, it's certainly not our fault, but the reality is what we are doing is we are not taking responsibility for choosing a will apart from him, which is what we did in the garden. We chose uh, the punishment of death. That's what God said. Uh, if you eat from this tree, you will surely die. And now that we are experiencing death, we have the nerve, we have the gall, we have the impudence to, to not take responsibility ourselves for why these things are happening. And instead, we either blame him or we blame others in our lives when we see these kind of things unfold. Now, this ought not to be. We cannot make the same mistakes over and over. We have to take responsibility for these things. Even these tragedies in life, we have to go, at the end of the day, I don't know why God is causing some of this, but ultimately, the only reason it happened is because we as a humanity have a will that wanted to exert itself over the will of God. And because of that, we opened the proverbial box. And all these ills that we experience are because of us. So, uh, you want to separate yourself from division. Uh, good. There's many things that cause division in the church. A new one to the list is repeating past mistakes. There's no reason to do that. These things, Paul say, happened for our benefit. Even the things in your own life happened maybe for your own benefit or for the benefit of your children, right? So that they would steer clear of making the same mistakes, but we have to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. It's the exhortation that Paul is inviting us to do. Come, hear how you are vulnerable to creating division by simply repeating the same mistakes that people of faith have been making over and over and over again. It, it doesn't have to be this way. And that's the beauty of how it ends, right? It doesn't have to be this way. What, is, what does Paul say? No trial, none of these trials, has overtaken you that has not been faced by others. I think we've, we've seen at least four common trials that we all experience. None of them are, are individual we all experience these things in various ways. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tried beyond what you are able to bear. But with the trial, will also provide a way out so that you may be able to endure it. Folks, he has given you the blessing, 
the gift of the Holy Spirit. He is inviting you to cooperate with that gift so that you might be able to be separated from the corruption that leads to division. Father, this is my prayer for myself and for this church, for our communities of faith, that we might be able to embrace the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He's not going to force himself on us. He's asking. He's invitational with us. He's inviting us to experience life. Father, may we trust that you are indeed faithful, that you will provide a way through all these common trials that we face. Father, may we learn from our successes and from our failures so that we might be able to experience life. Experience the rest that has been promised to your people. Father, you you know each individual in here. You know their hearts. You know their situations. You know the specifics of of these common trials that they're experiencing. Will you be faithful to them to, to show them and provide them the way out? We ask these things in in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who is resurrected from the dead and, and gives us that same power to be able to experience our resurrection from the dead as well. Amen.